Welcome to the Activist Insight Podcast, which takes you through the top shareholder activism stories as told by Activist Insight Monthly. This month, we are celebrating our one-year anniversary with the podcast. I'm Ilana DeRay, a financial reporter with Activist Insight. And this month, we're asking, can Carl Icahn garner enough support for his board revamp at Occidental Petroleum? Why does Heyman Capital Management think United Development Fund 4 is a Ponzi scheme? What is the secret behind land and building success? But first, a look at the world of activist short selling. Our cover story explores the top trends in the space. The number of short-selling campaigns has dropped this year to 104, the smallest amount since 2013. Yet the decreased activity does not indicate that the strategy has become dull. In fact, today's short-sellers are working harder than ever. Joining us today is Activist Insight Editor-in-Chief Josh Black, who spoke to a number of sources about the interesting trends in activist short-selling. Hi Josh, welcome to the show. Why have there been fewer campaigns this year? Thank you. Yeah, well, um, there have been fewer campaigns, and I think there are a number of reasons. You can sort of group them into macro reasons, things like the increased interest in short selling among funds generally, and that may increase the cost of the borrow and force some smaller players out of the game, uh, particularly with the Russell 2000 being in a prolonged slump. You know, the smaller targets are not really there. And then on the other hand, you have the kind of personnel reasons. And you've seen a lot of short sellers kind of uh, hang up their boots or really reduce their activity. And so some of the ones we mentioned in the report are Mark Cahodis, Geo Investing, the Street Sweeper is notably less busy than it used to be. And they targeted a huge number of fairly small companies. But then you, you have a core of people who are as busy as ever. And uh, Spruce Point Capital Management, founded by Ben Axler, Carson Blocks, Muddy Waters, there was a Texas-based short seller called Glaucus Research that split up into two different short sellers. And each of those has been very busy. That's Benitez Research and Blue Orca Capital. So it's definitely a different landscape with a smaller number of players and a smaller number of campaigns. But as our feature this month tries to make clear, it's no less interesting. So how have short sellers been performing overall? So actually, the interesting thing is that short sellers have been performing better this year, and that's despite the markets mostly trending up. This may be because they're targeting international companies, which are more vulnerable, uh, or smaller companies. This has actually been the best kind of average one-week performance for short sellers uh, for several years. And that's interesting. Obviously, we don't have longer-term data for 2019 campaigns because they're newer. So it may be that they're more successful in the short term this year, but actually those uh, targets tend to fade away. 2014 was the last time that returns were really anywhere near this good and 2015 was probably the record year for activist short selling. After that, it kind of tailed off both returns and then subsequently activity by short sellers. So it does seem that performance is a link to the number of campaigns and that might be an interesting thing to look for next year if we see more short sellers coming out. Are some regions more receptive to activist short selling than others? Well, I don't know if any regions are especially receptive to activist short sellers. I think we we know that North America is probably the market in which 
activist short sellers are most widely accepted for the role they play in the markets. Uh, one of the interesting things about this year is how much of a crackdown there has been on short sellers in Europe. Hong Kong cracked down on activist short sellers uh, a few years ago. This year, some short sellers are saying that Europe is even worse than Hong Kong. And that's particularly in France with relation to uh, Casino and Germany with Wirecard, uh, which we previously discussed on this podcast. What has been the biggest short campaign of the year? And what lessons can we take from it? Indisputably, the the biggest, most talked about short campaign of the year is General Electric. And it's an unusual campaign in that it's not an activist short seller doing it, but a fraud investigator, a professional uh, vigilante accountant, Harry Markopoulos, although he is being reimbursed or funded by a proportion of the profits by an unnamed third party investor. So I think we can kind of treat it as an activist short selling campaign. And this has been interesting because some short sellers have been uh, really opposed to the arrangement whereby he gets a cut of the profit, saying it wouldn't pass compliance at their shops. It's hard to say really where they fall. You know, everyone is is doing activist short selling for a return. So maybe there's less kind of direct accountability for the length of the investment and how long he pursues the campaign. But, you know, activist short sellers have to exit their positions uh, for a variety of reasons. So um, the interesting thing will be seeing how seriously uh, his allegations are taken in the long run. It wiped 11% off General Electric's share price on the day of. The CEO bought stock. Other executives were trotted out to make the case that uh, the allegations, which involved capital reserves for their long-term care planning insurance division, uh, their accounting for their Baker Hughes investment, effectively their kind of cash flow and reserves were all wrong. Uh, the stock has recovered a little bit, not fully. So it will be interesting to see if there is a follow-up. You know, it's a very long report, and I wouldn't expect to see Markopoulos kind of doing battle with the company on a day basis like we see some short sellers but it will be an interesting one to look back on in a year's time and even longer and see you know was he right or was he wrong thanks for being here josh for our next report despite its small size compared to other dedicated activists lands and buildings has made a name for itself in the real estate sector as a force to be reckoned with one source told me last month the activist hedge fund founded by Jonathan Litt and Craig Melcher reported $577.2 million in regulatory assets as of December 31st. This compares to an average of $2.9 billion that primary-focused activists managed as of August 22nd, according to Activist Insight Online. However, the small size has not held land and buildings back. Like other dedicated activists, Land and Buildings gained an average of approximately one board seat per year since 2013, Activist Insight Online data show. Lit's tenacity in part makes up for Land and Buildings' size, enabling the activists to maintain influence, even with a relatively small stake of 1.8% on average. He's probably one of the most successful activists in terms of the size of his positions, Ellie Klein, a partner at law firm Schulte, Roth, and Zabel, told Activist Insight Monthly. Lands and Buildings often takes a proactive approach that involves focusing on operational efficiency, seeking strategic alternatives, and gaining board representation at its target companies. Since 2013, Land and Buildings has advanced demands at 20 firms, gaining an average total follower return of 11.8% 
according to Activist Insight Online. Lit is known in the activist community for his outspoken nature and media presence. Advisors told Activist Insight Monthly that the words he uses and the tactics he adopts prove he is persistent and aggressive. One advisor even referred to Lit as a pit bull. At Taubman Centers, Lit embarked on a multi-year campaign to push for asset sales and governance improvements. Land and Buildings lost the proxy contest in 2017, but won a board seat the following year. However, Litt decided not to stand for re-election at the 2019 annual meeting because the company did not intend to renominate him, he said. High insider ownership and a strange relationship with the board did not deter Litt from working tenaciously to improve shareholder value. The activist in June threatened his third contest at the Real Estate Investment Trust proving that he does not back down easily. Most recently, land and buildings revisited old targets like Brookdale Senior Living, Liberty Property Trust, and Hudson's Bay Company to advance M&A and board-related demands. Veteran activist investor Carl Icahn seeks to replace four directors at Occidental Petroleum through a rarely used written consent mechanism just a few months after the company's annual meeting. The decision came after Occidental avoided a shareholder vote on its merger with Anadarko Petroleum by agreeing to a financing deal with Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway. The question now is whether Occidental shareholders want to penalize the board for not giving them a say in the transformative transaction. Using the written consent mechanism is a two-step process. First, ICON needs to deliver consents from 20% of the outstanding stock, or 149 million shares, to set the record date before he can seek approval from a majority of the shares to install his nominees on the board. Onlookers assume the first step won't be too difficult since 21% of shareholders, owning roughly 125 million shares, voted against the re-election of most directors at Occidental's annual meeting on May 10th. Icon owns 4.4% of the stock and is likely to be backed by T. Rowe Price, a 3.7% shareholder that publicly lambasted the Anadarko deal for lacking rationale, as well as Wellington Management, which owns a toehold stake and cited poor capital allocation decision oversight as the reason for its vote against all directors. Beyond that is a bit trickier. Although Icon targeted two of the least popular directors for replacement, he also seeks to remove Occidental's chairman Eugene Batchelder and director Margaret Foran, who was one of the board members to receive the most support at the past meeting. Another issue for shareholders could be Icon's challenge coming so early after the annual meeting. Sidley Austin partner Kylie Cuffet told Activist Insight Monthly that the directors deserve a honeymoon period in which shareholders can see how this transaction shakes out. In Icon's view, a key impediment to his proxy contest is the onerous written consent mechanism because it could potentially make his collection of signatures more difficult. Likafed argued that the procedures are not unusual, but Anelia Crawford, a partner at Schulte, Roth, and Zabel, said Occidental complicated the rules so much that it is almost no right given to shareholders to act by written consent. 
After nearly four years of publishing accusations against United Development Funding 4, Heyman Capital Management is far from finished. The short seller exited its position in 2016, but still contends that the firm, known as UDF, is a Ponzi scheme. UDF in July settled charges made by the Securities and Exchange Commission, agreeing to pay $8.2 million in penalties for failing to disclose that it could not pay its distributions and was using money for a newer fund to pay investors in an older fund. The company settled without admitting or denying the allegations. Heyman in December 2015 argued in an anonymous report that UDF was operating a Ponzi scheme worth billions of dollars, funding distributions to existing shareholders by raising new capital from unassuming retail investors. The allegation pushed the company's stock price off a cliff, tumbling 35% on news of the report and a further 9% in after-hours trading. By February 2016, the stock had tumbled 62.6%, leading to a trading halt of UDF's shares. UDF sued Heyman and its founder Kyle Bass in December 2017 for business disparagement and tortious interference, an allegation that could go to trial after a court denied Heyman's request for dismissal. UDF's counsel Paul Peltier told Activist Insight Monthly that UDF's finances, accounting, and business model remained strong. He also said the company uncovered evidence that showed Heyman's campaign is an unlawful short and distort manipulation scheme. However, Bass told Activist Insight Monthly that the short seller will stand behind our work in the civil courtrooms against UDF. And now, for a couple of stories that did not make it into the magazine. Plumbing company Ferguson has agreed to separate its U.S. and U.K. operations after Tryon Partners urged it to do so. The demerger will further simplify the company's structure and will enable the U.K. division to focus exclusively on its U.K. customers, Ferguson said. Meanwhile, another proposal advanced by Tryon is reportedly dividing Ferguson's shareholder base. Investors are at odds over the company potentially moving its listing to New York from London after Tryon suggested the company do so. Ferguson reached out to top investors for preliminary discussions about a U.S. listing and received mixed reviews. A top 20 shareholder said the move will give the company a better valuation, given that the U.K.-based firm already conducts 90% of its business in the U.S. Others, however, are afraid they will be forced to sell their shares due to a mandate prohibiting their ownership of overseas stock. It's like being a forced seller at zero premium, one shareholder told the Financial Times. The investor added that Ferguson should seek buyers if it believes it trades at a discount. Nelson Peltz's try-in first disclosed a 6% stake in June and said the business trades at a discount to comparable U.S. peers. Media reports later indicated that Tryon is pushing Ferguson to sell its UK business and move its listing to the US. Elsewhere in Europe, Dan Loeb's Third Point Partners has reportedly built a stake in Essler Luxottica amid a power struggle between the company's Italian and French factions following a 2018 merger between the two leading eyewear makers. Reuters reported that the activists already met with Essler Luxottica's executive chairman and largest shareholder, Leonardo Del Vicio, although the content of the discussions remains unclear. 
A conflict between Del Vicio and Esseler chief Hubert Sonnier arose after the former tried to advance his right-hand man as the combined firm's next CEO. The internal battle attracted investment managers Fidelity International, Fitrust, and Sycamore Asset Management, among others, which proposed to break the stalemate by adding two independent directors to the 16-member board. However, the warring sides reached an agreement in May, starting the search for a new CEO and increasing the focus on integrating the businesses. The dissident nominees were not elected at the company's annual meeting in May. Third Point has been increasingly active outside the U.S. Another target, Sony, recently agreed to sell its 5% stake in Olympus amid pressure from the activist. Third Point is also running a multi-year campaign at Swiss foods giant Nestle, which implemented the activist suggestions to streamline its operations and brand portfolio. That's all for this month's episode of the Activist Insight Podcast. If you like what you hear or want to read more, you can subscribe to Activist Insight Monthly by emailing subscriptions at activistinsight.com. For comments or questions about the podcast, or if you want something discussed on a future episode, please email press at activistinsight.com. Please do rate and review the podcast on whichever platform you are using to help others access our reporting. I'm Ilana DeRay. Thanks for listening.